Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle Podcast. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode number 143. I hope everybody's having a great week out there. Hope you're enjoying the nice spring weather. I know we certainly are over here at the world headquarters of the Drum Shuffle Podcast. We have a great interview for you today. I am joined by Uh, Just a a phenomenal drummer, a great guy. The great Dan Schnell will be joining us right after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by Dan Schnell. Uh, Dan is a New York native now making his home uh, out in sunny Southern California. And Dan is stepping out as his uh, first album out uh, as the composer and leader That album is called Shine Through. It is a fantastic listen. And Dan and I talked for uh, almost an hour and a half, and we we touched on basically everything, not only the album, but education, um, you know, the importance of getting that education, uh, playing in different scenarios. Dan is just a wealth of information, and if you're not familiar with his playing, get hip quick because this cat has got it, whatever it is. So please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle, Dan Schnell. Good afternoon, Dan. How are things going? Things are good. I've got um, a nice cloudy Thursday afternoon in Los Angeles instead of saying the usual sunny Los Angeles. And um, all, all's well. 
Well, it doesn't make me feel quite as bad. You know, uh, here in central Kentucky, we went from, you know, 75 yesterday, I want to say, and today it's about 45. So a uh, big difference in weather for us. We're ready for spring for sure. Yeah, we are. We kind of had spring last week. It was super hot and really nice here. And then all of a sudden it just, we just got like a huge downpour on Monday, and nice, which we need. Don't get me wrong. California needs all the rain it can get. Yeah. Um, and it's been nice to come back to spring weather for us, which is like 60s, maybe 70s in the afternoon. Because everybody thinks California is so awesome, and then you're here in August, and it's 100 <laughs> degrees for like eight days straight. You're like, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, you know, um, it, it's, you know, we can get into global warming if you want and solve that as drummers. Um, if we could solve that, I would love to tackle that, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be beyond my show. That's for sure. Um <laughs> Speaking of which, man, welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Thanks so much for taking time to come on and talk with us and have a drum hang. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to have a good time today. I am uh, honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure, man. We're The honor's all ours. Um, as is my tradition here on the show, um, we typically try to start, you know, at the very beginning just so any of my listeners that are unfamiliar with, uh, I think it's always cool to get the backstory. So talk to us a little bit. You're not a native um, Californian. You grew up in New York, if, if I'm reading this correct. So talk to us a little bit about growing up, how you got into music and drumming. Um, do you come from a musical family? Um, kind of. There's, there's quite a few musicians in my family, but, um, not like serious professional musicians. I have a cousin who's the exact same age as me, um, and she is a really fantastic cello player, and she's a music teacher. Um, my mom is a singer. Um, she probably has perfect pitch, but doesn't know it because she seems to always know, like, the starting note of every song. Um, and my dad really wanted to play the drums, but his dad just basically said no, which I think, so in, like, first, second grade, I was really, I just really wanted to play drums. I don't, I don't remember having any, like, specific impetus for it. Like, you know, like, I saw this show or something like that. It was more just like I wanted to do it. I was set up in like the corner of our L-shaped couch with like the classic pots and pans and five-gallon buckets and stuff like that. And um, I think because my grandfather said no to my dad, I think that was kind of my dad being like, yeah, you want to do it? Let's do it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I did... Um, uh, music in elementary school, which isn't, I have an eight year old daughter, so I'm aware of how things are very different now in elementary school versus when I was there. But, um, 
Yeah, growing up in New York on Long Island, um, we had a great program in elementary school. I did concert band. I did a lot of auxiliary percussion. Um, I was doing like all county and all state stuff for drum set, for timpani. Um, so, so I kind of, I was in early and, and like really all about it. Um, funny enough, when I auditioned in elementary school, they wanted me to be a violinist because they thought I didn't have good rhythm and they said I had better melodic retention, which is really hilarious, but you know, that's how things go. Um, and then I started taking lessons pretty early on. Um, so I was always like, uh, really great with sight reading, like classical percussion stuff, especially snare drum and learned all my rudiments. But, um, and then I studied a lot in high school. I studied with uh, a really fantastic drummer named Al Miller, who kind of came out of the, uh, he was good friends with Buddy, uh, Buddy Rich, and came out of like the kind of military and big band side of drumming. Um, so he got me pretty well together in my hands. But I didn't, you know, I didn't, I don't feel like I really, blossomed musically until college. Um, also, right before I went to college, I, Al Miller had already hooked me up with Jim Chapin, so I had taken a couple of lessons with Jim Chapin, and who is, you know, kind of like a, uh, a drum idol to some people, especially in the teaching world. And then from Jim, I actually jumped to another incredible teacher, uh, Dom Famularo, and with him, we started working on you know, just more like expanding my technique and my comfort at the drum set. But again, none of that was really music related much. So um, I left New York to go to USC in Los Angeles, thinking like all of my favorite drummers at the time, I didn't know them as jazz drummers because I wasn't yet listening to much jazz, but I was listening to like Steve Gadd and Vinnie Kaliuta and Lenny White, but I didn't understand like the, uh, <laughs> the lineage that they had really gone through. I just knew that they studied jazz. So I thought, Oh, I should go to school for jazz, not <laughs> knowing in, in, entirely what I was getting myself into. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the start of it all. And then moving out here to Los Angeles and going to USC to the Thornton School of Music was kind of a, a big life shift. Obviously a life shift in moving a thousand miles away from my family, uh, but also just in like completely new musical contexts for everything. And having to basically relearn a lot of the things that I learned as a younger uh, student of the music and of the drums and like learn the purpose of them, not just them anymore, but like, how can I use this thing? Why did I learn this thing if I don't know how to use it? You know, like rudiments are so great, but if you can only play them on a drum pad, eh, they don't take you very far, you know? Um, so it was, it was at USC that I feel like I really, kind of got a lot more music and blossomed a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, 
I'm one of those, but why guys, you know, and if the answer is just because it drives me bananas, um, is <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I guess, you know, down here in the South, we would say I was a willful child, <laughs> you know, and dr- drumming was a rebellion for me. And, you know, looking back, you know, I wish I had, you know, furthered my education, you know, instead of, you know, Led Zeppelin three side two, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's kind (laughs) of, you know, I I guess that's kind of my bibliography. But, you know, you mentioned a couple of huge names, you know, obviously Chapin, huge name. Dom is now like the international drumming ambassador of everything, you know, and just such a, a kind soul. So you had a couple of really big, you know, names there in your formal training, which I think is huge. Um, and that is, you know, bound to set you on some sort of path. Now, I'm curious, being a New York guy, um, how you didn't look at, and maybe you did, but how you didn't look at, you know, uh, Eastman or Berkeley and all those places. I, I was college non-negotiable in your family. Um, I don't know if it was non-negotiable, but I guess a good um, maybe asterisk to put on this was that. I have three older brothers, um, all of whom basically encouraged me to get out of where we were. Okay. Cause it was, it was, it was like, okay, we live in New York. We grew up in New York. We have the energy and the understanding of that and go see something else and see what it's like. You can always move back is kind of how I remember my brother, Brian, very specifically kind of telling me that. And I his, his exact line was go West young man, go West. Um, like I remember that, that hilariously clearly. And that his point was just go try something different um, and see what happens. And I, you know, I got into some other schools for different things. I was still on the fence. So like I, I was thinking about, going to school for veterinary medicine and minoring in music. Um, and then I had some like easy schools that wanted me to come there for like business degrees and stuff like that with full scholarships. And I, I remember having the conversation with my dad. I was just like, if I don't go for it right now, I'll probably regret it and never have the opportunity. And if I hate going to music school, I can always change my major and do something else. But I got to like, I just had, especially funny enough, you bring it up after the, I studied with Dom for probably like five or six months at the end of my senior year of high school and the whole summer before going to USC. And he, he was the first person that made me like kind of actually think like, Oh, maybe I could actually just play drums and music. Yeah. Like maybe that is viable. You know, um, my dad is a, but now retired, but New York uh, police officer. 
And so, like, you know, he's a little bit more conservative. It's, oh, you should get a job that has benefits and blah, 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 you know, <laughs> as opposed to being a musician that's just out on their own and, you know, responsible for everything in life. But um, I just kind of got that feeling, and especially with Dom's push, too, was like, you know, take your opportunity. This is it. If you don't, you'll never know. And um, I didn't even apply to Manhattan School or to the New School or to Berkeley. Um, they weren't really thoughts to me. Okay. I don't know why. Um, also, I went to a private Catholic all-boys high school, which was also conservative. And that's funny enough. That's where Al Miller taught. That's why I went. That's why I chose to go to the school. Like I applied to the private high school to go study with Al. Um, and yeah, that the, I was the first person from the high school to go past the Rockies to go <laughs> that far west. <laughs> wow. Okay. And yeah. And so like, you know, it's a Catholic school. They're sending a lot of kids to like all Ivy league schools. It's like one of the best rated high schools in the country. So, um, so it was a, I'm, I'm very thankful for my education, but it was, they, they certainly weren't trying to push me out the door to go to music school. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, okay. So as a lifelong, and we, we've got to talk at least a little bit of football here. Okay. Because I, I try to, I, I'm a huge football guy and as a lifelong Notre Dame fan. Okay. You, you ended up at, USC, which, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed that somebody didn't talk to you about this ahead of time, you know, um, you know, I kid, I kid, but, um, you, you say you went to a, you know, a, a kind of a conservative Catholic all boys high school when you said, Hey, I'm going to go to, to USC and, and, and go to Thornton. Did anybody raise their eyebrows uh, towards you at all? I, I'm just curious. Oh, how about all of them? Okay. Eyebrows at me. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, okay. Good. Yes. I, I couldn't even tell you how many kids. Like, I mean, I had a huge graduating class of. Geez, it was a lot of kids. It was like 400 or something kids in my just in my grade. Okay. Um, and a large percentage of them went to those went to Notre Dame, went to Villanova, you know, <laughs> went to just schools that are, yeah, it is like a, a pipeline, you know, it's like continuing the same style and thought process of education. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the place that I grew up, you know, I, it, the early years of my life was, you know, in a place that you can't find on a map, you know, in South Central Kentucky, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, dairy farming was going to be my life, you know, or, All right. you know, or, or, you know, I, you know, learning how to ride horses, you know, I mean, that's just kind of what it is around here. Or, you know, you go to the University of Kentucky for ag, uh, you know, and, and learn the right way to be a farmer kind of thing. Um, yeah. I, I didn't have that in me. Like, I, I just didn't see myself, you know, taking over the family land. That, that was never even a thought. Like, I had to explore music and 
And as I didn't end up in college right away, you know, kind of after I graduated high school, it was L.A., Nashville or death. Right. That was going to be one of the things that that happened to me. And I chose the third death. I jumped in a van with, you know, four of my best buddies and we were like, hey, we're, we're going to make it. <laughs> you know, kind of. Thing. Yeah, let's get on the road. Exactly. Let's let's hit the road. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't change anything about my upbringing or, you know, trying to do something, uh, you know, grandiose, at least in my own head. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, as a lifelong Notre Dame football fan, I hate USC. I have to, but it's one of the greatest schools out there, you know, and my wife and I, you know, we, we have a 17 year old daughter who's, uh, you know, deeply in the arts. Um, and you know, she said, well, she says to me all the time, my wife, she was like, what if she wants to go to film school at USC? Would you allow it? And, you know, I jokingly say, absolutely not, but I would, you, you know, um, I, I think Especially it, cause it's an incredible film school. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, but I mean, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, I don't know, and I'm not trying to get political here, but we tend to divide up into our tribes, you know, even as kids now, I, I feel like it's not a click thing. I think it's a, this is where I belong. This is what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, you know, to hell with you, whatever you moved literally all the way across the country, you know, but you got to study with people like Peter Erskine, who's been a guest on this show, who is, I think, one of the most inquisitive jazz minds I've ever come across, ever. Um, yeah. You know, Absolutely. so when I interviewed Peter, I was scared to death because he's Peter you know, and he completely flipped the script on me and I felt like I was being interviewed, you know, because, Interesting. oh yeah, because, you know, I, I'm not a jazz player. I love jazz music, but I can't play it to save my life. Not with, not that it would pass any, um, you know, discerning ear. They would know I was faking it immediately. And Peter was like, well, why do you think that is? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I, I told him that. And, you know, he was like, oh, well, that's going to change for you. You know, it, uh, we all come back to jazz, you know, as drummers. You're, you're going to be back here. You know, I just thought it was amazing. And I'm assuming studying out there in that school, uh, you got to ask a lot of the same questions, right? Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't think that I can speak to that the same way, only because I feel like I was just that um, I was hungry, but I was young and dumb. And maybe in 20 years, I would still say the same thing about where I am now. But, uh, um, the, you know, I wasn't, when I showed up there, uh, Peter is now in charge of the whole entire uh, drum department at USC. 
Um, but when I was studying there, he was still just like faculty. And so he was really busy and he was in and out on tour all the time. And he didn't teach at the school. You would, you know, drive to his house to go get lessons. Um, and he just had a limited roster that he could teach. So I didn't even get to study with him until I was a junior there. Oh, okay. Um, and so I interacted with him and I got to meet him and I got to watch him play and we got to have lots of conversations, but you know, it's different when you're in a room full of all of the other kids that are jazz majors. Um, and you know, he's fielding lots of questions from lots of different people and, um, and you didn't really have that personal connection until you're like in a room with him by yourself uh, quite a few times. And then suddenly, you know, then, then the personal rapport kind of opens up a lot more. But um, so when I was there, uh, you know, some people are also all about like when I'm at school, I really want to study with Peter. I want to study with Peter for all four years. I want to get everything out of him that you can and I kind of looked at it the opposite way. I was kind of like, I'm in school for four years. I want to study with as many different people as I can and get as much information as I can. Yeah. So I studied my first, my freshman year. I studied the whole year with Ndugu Chancellor. Wow. And <laughs> I did not like totally understand the entire uh, like career of his at the time I knew him about, I knew of him as like Michael Jackson, right. Thriller playing yeah. on all that. So. Yeah. Um, and you know, and then I walk in and the first lesson had like nothing to do with playing the drums like that. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, he like pulled out a Wilcoxon piece and asked <laughs> me to play it as quietly as human possible, humanly possible on the snare drum. And I was just like, Oh God. And he was like, that wasn't quiet. <laughs> um, We're going to learn here today, son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then my sophomore year, I studied with, uh, Aron Surfati. Um, Aron is from Venezuela and he still teaches at USC. Uh, he also used to teach at Cal arts, um, California Institute of the Arts, which is a great school out here. And he uh, very fittingly runs like the Latin jazz ensemble, uh, which they call Alage. And um, he is an incredible drummer, but he's also an incredible percussionist, uh, bongo, congas, uh, you know, everything. And um, that was my second year of studying with him, learning a lot of just Afro-Cuban music, and getting into that, and I played in the Lager with him that second year. Um, then my junior year, I studied with Erskine, and that was its own incredible uh, year of study. And, you know, with Peter, it was interesting because it was a lot about editing, learning to edit yourself, learning to, like, play something, listen back to it and, and make kind of back to, uh, your, uh, how do you say it before the, uh, the, but why question, yeah. you know, 
it's like, oh, that's, oh, that's cool that you can play that, but why? Why did you play that? <laughs> did it have anything to do with the music? So Peter was, was um, as much as he was giving me interesting um, things and, you know, patterns, comping things and sight reading things to work on, I feel like a lot of the lessons were coming back to conceptual ideas of like, well, what do you think fits here? And what do you think would set up this song the best? And uh, that's cool that you played that. But then when you played that, like the tempo felt funny right here, you know, or it didn't feel like you really meant to play that, you know, those kinds of concepts. And then my fourth year, I moved from Peter with the, you know, the concept of what I was saying before, it's like, I want to get the most from as many people as possible. So my fourth year I studied with, um, Harry Lynn Carrington. And I also studied with Alan Pasqua at the same time because I had like open credit in my course schedule. I kind of worked hard to get a bunch of, uh, you know, just like school stuff out of the way my first three years. So that my last year there, I was really just, focused on music as much as possible. Um, so studying with Terry Lynn took me in like a wildly different direction. Um, yeah. She pushed on me a lot more than Peter did. She didn't want me to edit. She wanted me to explore and just add more just stuff. go for it. Like, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Her, my, <laughs> my first lesson with her, she didn't say this in any kind of like a dig. It was just like a really hilarious, amazing question to think back on. She was like, so you don't really have any chops, do you? <laughs> I was just like, oh, no, what? And I didn't understand it at the time, but it was, it was kind of what I was talking about before, where it's like, oh, that's cool that your hands can do all that stuff, but you can't access any of it while you're playing music. So what good is it, right? And that was, that was what Terry really imprinted on me was, was like just the same, I guess a similar concept to Peter and like everything needs to come out of the music, but she was like, well, but there's so much more you can do within the music. Like, well, what about this? What about that? And so with, with Peter, it was like, we were taking lessons and he's recording them and we're analyzing stuff together at the same time. And with Terry, it was like, I'm going to sit down at this drum set. You're going to sit down at that drum set. And we're going to play this song and you're going to sing me the melody and we're going to play. And then we're going to trade and we're going to trade choruses. And I'm going to expect you to not get lost in my playing. And I'm going to not get lost in your playing. And then we're going to trade eights or fours. And um, it was much more like, uh, let's just do this. Let's just dive in and play. Yeah. So. Um, in that regard, uh, she challenged me in a very different way. And then she also introduced me to something that I still do on a, a regular basis. And I still teach on a regular basis, which is all the Alan Dawson stuff, yeah. Yeah, um, man. <laughs> the rudimental ritual. And then a lot of the, you know, uh, there's a lot of coordination exercises out of syncopation and stuff like that, that I still find myself teaching and I still find myself going back and just doing and practicing because, you know, you, you don't keep up with it. Your hands and your feet and your coordination, it all goes out the window if you don't keep up with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
And, you, you know, I mean, I just think, you know, even though I can't do any of that stuff, I mean, I re- really, honestly, I can't, you know, like for me, if, if I can, I, you know, as a player, if, if I can play, you know, I don't know, paradiddles at, you know, 180, 190, 200 BPM, if I can keep that going for three or four minutes, I'm like, wow, that's awesome. You know, way to go, Jamie. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, yeah. But I come from a very different thing than the people that came up in the Alan Dawson stuff, right? Um, Nate Morton is a good friend of mine. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Nate. Um, he, he's Absolutely. The, the, the voice, right? Yeah. The, the voice for a while. And- yeah. And, and still doing it to this day. And, you know, um, Nate tells me all the time, he was like, man, I, I don't have any chops. And I'm like, you're full of. I don't really believe that. I've seen him play the drums. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you're full of crap, man. You've got all the chops that I want to have as a rock drummer, right? But he's coming yeah. from that Berkeley College of Music jazz program where he was like, I don't have any chops, <laughs> you know, or the yeah. Terry Lynn Compared Carrington, to. yeah, <laughs> right, or the Terry Lynn Carrington comment. You don't really have a lot of chops, do you? Um, so I, I think, you know, I always approach everything from my caveman, Cro-Magnon, John Bonham, rock drummer brain, right? And it is the, you know, I come at it from, it's not about the notes you play. It's about the notes you don't play. That's where the magic is, right? I think. I don't know. I I would say that same magic is actually 1,000% in jazz, too. Sure. I mean, there's plenty of drummers that play a lot of stuff. Um, and it, yeah, like anything can feel monotonous. It's, it's funny how like crazy, busy, hard playing can feel so amazing. But then the third song of that, your ears are worn out and you're tired, you know, and it, it starts to feel dynamically like it hasn't gone anywhere. Right. So, um, this, uh, you know, actually this is a, a thing that Erskine always talks about too. The spaces are just as important as the notes that you're playing. Um, and I, I feel like the more I have grown as a composer and, started to think more about like uh, not just what can I do on this song, but like, Oh, what makes this song feel the best? And then in the larger picture, Oh wait, what makes this whole entire set feel good? Oh, I'm going to blow hard on this other tune. They like, I have a vamp to solo on. Oh, so I'm going to make sure that I, maybe I don't let too much fly. And on these other songs, it's not really appropriate or, it just feels out of place, you know, so you start thinking in a bigger picture and it can really change how you think about that. And then, you know, also what you're saying, like I, you're, you're speaking my language in terms of what I grew up on too. Like I grew up listening to, uh, let's say like a lot of nineties grunge rock, like listening to Dave Grohl play with Nirvana and, Matt Cameron played with Pearl Jam and 
I grew up on John Bonham and on Neil Peart, like, you know, learning, which of course is a lot more drums with Neil and John, depending on the, the song. But, um, like that's actually where I grew up was in more of the classic rock. Yeah. And then I discovered more of the jazz, uh, in college. And part of it being what Ndugu is having me listen to and Peter and Aron and Terry, and then also what my peers at school were listening to, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't even know who these people are, you know? Yeah. Um, it's funny how you think, you know, jazz cause you listen to Miles Davis, but then like, Oh, but I don't know any of the people who played in this band. Oh, well, then you don't really, you haven't really checked out that much jazz because they all are leaders in their own right. And they all have all these other records that you should check out that they all play on, you know? Right. Um, right. There's a beautiful, like, um, intricate weave of all of these musicians playing on lots of different records together. That is very different from the, I play in this band and that's all I do concept. Right. So it's not like you hear John Bonham playing on like, you know, 10 different bands records. You hear him on Zeppelin. Yes. The, the John Bonham. Philly Joe Jones. You go listen to Philly Joe Jones on hundreds of records. Yes. And I think, and maybe you can educate me a little bit. I, because, you know, I love this because I learned so much doing this show right? Doing this podcast, I've learned more about music interviewing musicians than I ever did just as a listener. I mean, honestly, because it's, it's perspective, right? And I think I have to be very careful or I try to be very careful of not name dropping and, and giving my resume to people, you know, but I feel like in jazz, when you start reading somebody's bio, you see 40 names in it, right? And yeah. I think that's the the world of jazz is a lot of it's about who you have played with. And that's where your, you know, your bona fides come from, <laughs> you know, or down here in the South, we say your bona fides, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Like I've played with all these people and that opens up a lot of doors. Whereas it's just the, it's different in rock music. When you start name dropping, everybody's like, that guy's a douche, <laughs> you know, <laughs> D does that make sense? How I frame that a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I think that maybe the difference is that, um, not to say that there isn't, community among a lot of different rock musicians or R&B musicians. There is, and there is a lot of crossover between different people's bands or, you know, so-and-so played in this band for a few years and then they moved on and played with this band for a few years, especially with rhythm section players, right? Bass players, drummers, guitar players can definitely end up shifting through different bands. Yeah. Um, but I think the main difference is that a lot of jazz musicians, they, they spend their time learning so much different music and being challenged by different music that they kind of look forward to the opportunities to like, Oh, I played this, like a bunch of the same songs 
today as I did yesterday, but it was a totally different group. So it was a completely different take on all of that material. Yeah. Um, I, I, yes. You know, so I, I think you're not trying to remake something that someone made. You're trying to do the opposite. You're trying to make it new again. Right. And so when you play with all of these different musicians, instead of uh, thinking of it as like showing off, to me, it's more of an education. There's an education that on the bandstand playing with people that you cannot talk about. It's, it's, um, it's an experience only thing. And so knowing the difference of how it feels to play with this bass player versus that bass player who are both amazing, but totally feel different as a drummer to play with. I see it as more of a learning experience. Like, Oh, this person has a different view or concept of time than I do. Yes. Right. Like if you only want to play with someone who feels like Ray Brown, you're going to be very surprised if you play with someone that is more into Scott LaFaro or I, I mean, there's a million directions I can go, but um, the, the point just being that you're usually embracing the different as, ex, as opposed to some expectation that you don't sound like what I am used to. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I tell people this all the time, you know, I, I, I come from the, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I mentioned John Bonham a lot because I think he's the ultimate rock drummer. Right. But if you can, so many ways. (laughs) yes, but in, in bad ways too, you know, if you can only play like Bonham played in Zeppelin, you're always going to be playing behind the beat in every band that you ever play in, you know? Yeah. So I, and I played in a band where that's what they wanted and it was, everything was behind the beat. And I did that for three or four years and then, you know, which is great, I think, but, when you come out of that and you're in your next band and they're like, dude, you're dragging the shit out of this. You're like, gosh, I wonder why, (laughs) you know, why can't, what, what, why can't I do what this guy wants me to do? And it takes a minute to back up and go, Oh my God, I did the bottom thing for the last three or four years. And that's really all I know now, you know? It's, I, yeah. I, th- I think it's a mindset sort of thing. Um, and I think education, it, we, we, we use that word a lot in, oh, where did you further your education? Man, every gig that you did probably while you were attending USC was an education in and of itself, I would imagine. Am I right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, I feel like you go to school and you learn all of these things. And as with so much of academia, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that's so nice that you learned all of those things. They don't mean anything to me yet, though. 
and then you step out in the real world and you start performing for real and you start interfacing with other musicians and, um, you know, places that are having you play music and, you know, business owners and, and suddenly you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Oh, that's what he meant by that comment. And, you know, these little things that you can't totally understand why, um, like an elder musician is saying that to you as a teacher, yeah. you, you can't really have the perspective until you have some similar situation arise. And those situations, some of them arise in school, but more of them definitely you run into outside of school. And I mean, you know, this is all my personal experience. So the other thing is that some musicians started like playing and performing a lot younger than I did. So they already are having those experiences when they are in college. Um, and then others are more like me. It's like, oh yeah, I didn't get the opportunity to learn that yet. You know, um, watch out for this. When people say this, be careful, you know, right. <laughs> interesting <laughs> things to watch out for. Um, or, Hey, when you play, like you really got to mean this, otherwise no one's going to believe it. And then you get on the bandstand and you're like, Oh yeah, I didn't believe that when I played it. And that's why nobody else <laughs> believed it either. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> right you know? on. R yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I, I think, how do I want to say this where it makes sense and I don't spend eight minutes trying to explain it? Um, <laughs> you know, I, like I look at, you know, some of the folks that you've toured with and recorded with, you know, um, you know, the, the name that immediately jumps out to me is Larry Goldings, right? Because Larry has played with everybody on earth, I think. I, you know, in your world. You I know. mean, just the number of the all-time greatest drummers that he's played with yeah. is off the charts. Yeah. So, I mean, just the folks that I've had as guests on this show, there's a common thread, and one of those is Larry Goldings. You know, Alan Ferber, I see, you know, in your CV, David Benoit, um, Billy Childs. I mean, my God, you know. But I think we get too focused on, oh, he's played with him. Wow, that's awesome. But yeah, what, what you know, as sidemen, you know, so many drummers, um, especially in my world, the rock world, we get lost in, oh, well, you know, I toured with, and I'm not taking anything away with anybody, but you know, I've toured with, uh, I don't know, um, you know, Collective Soul for the last eight years. Johnny's a good friend of mine. You know, he's been playing in Collective Soul for a long time. But Johnny Rabb has played with everybody. You know what I mean? We, yeah. get, we get lost as, well, I'm you know, I'm the guy that tours in Motley Crue. Or I'm the guy that tours in Whitesnake. And it's like, yeah, but where have you been for the last, you know, 30 years, right? I, I, I don't know how to explain that. And I'm spending eight minutes explaining it. <laughs> That's what I didn't want to do when I came into this question. 
<laughs> but we get lost as, uh, as side men, you know, and you've got this great record coming out, um, you know, here in just a few weeks. I think May 13th is the street date for Shine Through. Yep. And, you know, when I go through your PR folder for Shine Through, it's, you know, it says here, you know, that I, basically you swore that you wouldn't do this until you had something unique to say, right? So let me ask this, um, and we'll transition a little bit into your record that you've done the, 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 the composing on. Um, how do you compose? Do you approach it rhythmically? Do you sit down at a piano? Do you sit down with a guitar? Um, how have you approached bringing up your own compositions as a band leader? Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two things here. I'm going to go backwards and take apart the other thing you said right before that. Okay. Which, um, so I think there's a lot of musicians that would really love to get a solid gig like you're talking about with Johnny Rice, like, oh, yeah, I play in Collective Soul. Like, that's my bread and butter that I that keeps me semi to very busy all year long, and then I have these other things that I get to do. Yeah. And then that makes some people really happy, and then that also makes some people really unhappy. And what I mean by that is that some people like the um, uh, consistency or the, uh, the knowledge of like comfort. Like I know I have these gigs this year. Uh, and then other people are a little bit more like, Oh, I would go crazy if I had to play the exact same music, the same way for months on end. You know, I like to be challenged to do different things all the time. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe um, a two-part thing of, like, opportunity and do you want that, right? Because a lot of people take those opportunities, but then they kind of get worn out on them. And they, they need to, like, let go of that to go do something else, you know? Yeah. Um, I have quite a few friends who were in big bands for a while, and then they just needed to move on to do something else, you know? And a, a part of that might also be leading into your second question, which is like wanting to release your own music or maybe feeling like, oh, I have been spending my whole life in, or my whole musical life in nothing but support of other people. And like, if you erase me, it doesn't matter they're just going to replace me with another drummer and it won't change anything. Right. Uh, like the band could still sound just as good. And most of the audience doesn't know. So, so there's that other idea of like, Oh, well I have some other musical things that I have to say and I want to put them out there and see if they strike anybody, you know? Yeah. Um, so for me, I remember very specifically when I was um, like fresh out of college 
and playing around town a lot and hosting some jam sessions and playing at smaller, you know, weird little clubs all over the city with my friends. Um, you know, it was just one of those things that we, we wanted to play all the time, but then everybody wanted like a CD. Give me a CD of your music. So (laughs) there was a whole lot of people who were just going into the studio and just cutting basically a demo in my mind, but then releasing it as like a record of some sort. And it really, it became a business card. And that, I don't know why I couldn't, I couldn't get behind that. I like, it's not that I didn't respect the people that were doing that. It was like all good and well, like, yeah, you want to do that. That's awesome. I just don't want to spend, you know, a few thousand dollars to go record a whole bunch of standards that a lot of people have already recorded and done like incredible versions of that I keep coming back to. I want, I don't want to do that. I just didn't want to do that. So my thought was, I don't want to go do a record of my own until I felt I had, instead of saying something unique, I think maybe it's more appropriate to say something unique to me, something that I musically had to say. Um, yeah, well, and, you, you've given me the perfect segue to get my, my catchphrase in here. The good news is oh. today, in today's music industry, the good news is anybody can put out a great record. The bad news is anybody can put out a great record. Right? It's true. It's true and it's true. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, I think, you know, so I, I will I, please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt and interject there, but that's the world we live in. Everybody has a great record. You know, I wish that was true, but there's a lot of bad records out there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Touche. I think that's, um, is that Duke Ellington's quote? There's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. I quote that <laughs> every day, every day. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, like I, I am not, uh, able to judge my music as good or bad uh, all I can judge is that I was very serious about the time and thought I've put into a lot of it and the people that I like to play with and want to play with and that I thought would express my, help me, help me to express my music as best as I could. Um, and I kind of see it as like, just the beginnings of my contribution to the musical world. Um, and, and I don't know that, you know, it's like, I can't judge how it's going to go. And popularity isn't always the judge of good or bad music either. It never so is. I just, it never yeah, so is. I just see it. Yeah. Yeah. I just see it as, as this is the start of my contribution to the lineage of music. And I've been writing a lot more, so I hope to have another record out maybe next year or the beginning of the following year. You know, it's a, it's a long cycle to get everything done. Yeah. Uh, but erasing that, 
Um, to answer your question about the compositional process, um, I mean, I kind of, my website and bio kind of mentions it a little bit too, but uh, I basically just feel like I'm really lucky to have played with a lot of really great composers. Um, and by being able to listen to them talk about their music and having conversations with them and then getting to play their music and then getting all these, like I said, the experience side of things, like all these different comments. Oh yeah. Could you think about like maybe doing this here or keep this more open? And then this part is more driving. And that you know, like all these little comments kind of add up to their own education after a while, especially when you're reading other people's brand new music or you're reading someone's music and, you know, Eric Harlan was the drummer on the record and you're like, holy crap, I'm never going to sound like Eric Harlan. I mean, I don't want to because I'm not Eric, but goddamn, I look up to everything he does musically, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah. And you, you, and so you get to say like, okay, and then you get to hear from a, like a composer saying, oh yeah, I, you know, that's totally cool what he did here, but you know what? Like I actually, this section, like I don't like it like that anymore because we've been playing it differently and now I kind of want it to go towards this other thing. And, and so you start seeing how uh, different people and different bands can kind of change the perception of music, right? So um, so I find that to be very fascinating and very important. And that's also a kind of do a little callback. That's the reason that so many jazz musicians are kind of in round robins and different, um, settings with different leaders with, Oh, but this person's playing bass and this person's playing drums on this tour. Um, and so all of that stuff adds up into, kind of that educational experience into thinking about how I want to put together my own music. Um, as far as the, like the nuts, nuts and bolts, nitty gritty of composing, I feel like mm, most of the songs on the record were written in pretty short amounts of time and mainly by uh, two things, either when I'm walking my dog in my neighborhood or when I'm on hikes out in the woods or up in the mountains here. And I'm just like singing a melody and like kind of letting it develop in my brain and just trying to keep my head empty of other stuff and then singing it into my voice memos on my phone. And then I sit down at the piano and kind of work out, okay, what's, what is the melody? What is this? Is it, do I really hear it like that? Or do I want to change anything? Or what, what's different if I go here or go there? And then uh, maybe there's a groove in my head. Maybe not. I, I feel like actually most times the last thing I think about is what I'm going to play on the drums. Um, and I'm thinking more about like, okay, what's the melody doing? Where's the harmony? Where's like tension and release? Uh, oh, this phrase feels long or this phrase feels short or, and then I kind of rebuild it and walk around some more singing it. And if, if it doesn't make sense to me, if it feels like I'm forcing anything, 
then that's kind of uh, uh, like a, a pretty quick asterisk. Like, okay, so something's not right here. So I, I don't know what it is, but something's not right. Um, and then secondarily and super important, I've written the song. It sounds good to me. It kind of makes sense. And then I bring it in front of a bunch of great musicians and we play it in a session and it's just like, oh yeah, this is cool. Hey, what do you think about this? Oh, this is weird here. I don't know what to play on this. You know, you start getting commentary from people who you respect yeah. and love to make music with. And so that, that workshopping a song. And then also another important one is like, hey, you don't go and record a song if you've never played it live because oh man, we played it live and that section that I thought was so great felt like it was too short or felt like it lasted too long or, you know, yeah. um, people aren't comfortable blowing on this section or um, or I don't know how to play this yet from the drums. Like, ah, uh, yeah, I'm just stepping on things because I'm still thinking about the melody and the bass line too much and I'm not thinking about a third part for the drums that kind of glues it, you know? Yeah. Um, so... So it's the writing of the song melodically usually is a, a short, quick thing. And then trying to figure out like the architecture of the song is something that I find is more of my time investment in the compositional part. And I'm, like I said, I'm lucky to be around a lot of great composers who are thinking in different ways and I ask questions all the time. I, I mean, just constantly. Um, from, so like Josh Nelson, who's on the record, he's an incredible composer and pianist. So, hey, what do you think about this chord? I, just, I don't know. It feels funny. It feels like it's not going anywhere. Like, what do, what, what do you think? And yeah. then he'll rattle off like five or six different things like, oh, well, we could think this way, or you could try this, or are you hearing this color, you know, and suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, I like that one and that one. Let me go home and play it now and think about it. Um, or like someone like Billy Childs, who writes incredible, like highly developed compositions. So there's like all these parts that keep repeating and keep coming back, but they keep building and changing slightly and getting more intense or, or more open, you know, it's like his, the way that he reuses material is incredible. Um, so the, uh, the inspiration comes from a lot of different places too. So it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it. And, and, and man, I, it amazes me of all, you know, I, and I've had, I don't know, a dozen, 15, drummers on this show that are great composers and they all say pretty much what you just said and that is oh no it, it's it always starts with the melody it it never comes from a what time signature is this going to be in uh, you know here's that cool you know ratamacue lick that i worked up <laughs> You know, it practiced the other day or, or you know, I, I wanted it to be. I, nobody has ever said, well, I came up with this great polyrhythmic idea on the kit. It never goes there. It's always, you know, I always think of this melodically first before I get to any of the drumming stuff. Right. 
which I which I find really interesting because as a drummer, you know, just a drummer, I approach everything rhythmically, right? But I don't have that compositional gene that the rest of you guys have. Like, you know, I can sit down and come up with lyrics uh, or, you know, a melody, but I'm always thinking about it as, well, what are the drums going to be doing here? You know, I, I never well, can. I challenge you to I, do the opposite. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and that's what they all say to me as well. Like, hey, get away from that. You got to, you know, um, which I find so interesting. But you said something in there. We never go record a tune that we haven't played live. The great Warren Haynes, uh, you know, from Government Mule and the Allman Brothers Band, you know, mm-hmm. there's a great yep. quote from him. He said, we as an industry have done this backwards for 75 years. And that is we record a record, then we go out and learn how to play the songs for 75 nights on the road. And, you know, we ought to be doing this the other way around. We should be playing all these songs out on the road for a year uh, or whatever, and then go into the studio and cut them because they'll tell you how they want to be played out on the road. Yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. And I mean, even like, so the material on the record Mm, there's only one song that we never played live. And that's because it, it was purposefully built as like a layered thing. Um, it's, uh, it's a, and it's kind of a short vignette on the record. It's called Vistas. But um, everything else, we, we definitely played live. And I didn't only play with that band. So like some of those songs I've played in trio format or quartet format and, um, you know, by workshopping those things, you, you get to know like, oh, this works or that works, but this never works. No matter who's in the band, this concept always seems to get weird or it doesn't really like sit right or it doesn't move how I want it to. Um, the difference of what he's talking about really is that if you can get out and play those songs to the point to where like the musicians on the recording session don't need to be looking at charts. They don't need to be thinking about what's big or small or what's the dynamics that we need here. That stuff's all been worked out on the bandstand and probably been like he was saying, tried a a handful of different ways. And you realize like, Oh yeah, this could work this way. This could work that way. It's really about like, how we pay attention to this section or that section. And then playing it live, you, you just start doing those things. You don't have to think about it anymore, but that he is a hundred percent correct in my eyes. And that unfortunately is still the case, which is like people are, you know, sight reading on recording sessions or only rehearsing for a few days before recording sessions trying to get a good take and then trying to sell that and trying to go on the road after. And then like you said, that's where you suddenly learn like, Oh man, I wish I had done this on the record. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, and you can't go backwards, you know? Yeah. And Uh, then you say, Oh, you know what? Let's do a live record because now we all know how to play this music. Right. So let's do a live recording of this. 
Well, and I, I mean, you know, there, there's a, there's some of these, you know, idioms in the music industry, you know, a good song, don't care who sings it. Right. Um, I, I think a good song will tell you how it wants to be played. Right. If you, if you have the fundamental building blocks there, after you've gone through it two or three times, you know, I, I tell guys all the time that, you know, guys that I've been in a band with for 30 years, um, you know, we all end up back together and it's the same, you know, songs or whatever. But I, I, I just say a good song will tell you what tempo it wants to be played at, right? You can't, you know, you can't make a 120 beat a minute song sound good at 80 beats a minute. You just can't do it. Right. I, I, I don't know about that. Uh, Here's the, the only thing I'll say about that is I would say that, um, because, all right. So maybe I'm biased because again, I'm coming out of, you know, the jazz language. And so one of the things that makes, certain um, recordings of a song for me are actually like the, the tempo and the thought process. And so this thing that's normally like a ballad in four, oh, well, he turned it into like a faster version of six and the changes feel great and the melody sits really well and the singer can phrase everything different and it's, uh, it's just like, messing with your perspective and you're like, Ooh, I know that song and it feels so different and it, but it still feels good. So to me, that is the beauty of, uh, what really incredible arrangers can do, which is they can take something that you've known in one way and shift your perspective on it and make you think it's almost a different song because they have, flip the script on you so much. And that can happen from harmony. That can happen from like changing a meter or changing a feel. And that can also come from changing instrumentation. Right. So, yeah, um, I did a very poor, I did a very poor job of of saying that basically, (laughs) because what you're saying is, is, is the truth, you know? So I set that up badly, I think, uh, or, 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 you know, not, not the way maybe I, I had thought I was going to say that. And it just, you know, like I say, I chase every rabbit hole. I just feel like, you know, there are certain things that maybe me as a drummer, I can't do that a great arranger can. Does that make sense? Because at the end of the day, if you've got five guys in the room, you know, a couple of guitarists, a bass player, a singer, a drummer, um, the drummer is going to be the arranger for the most part in that particular, you know, setting that I was explaining. Uh, So, yes, Mm. a, a great arranger can say, yeah, let's not do this in four. Let's do this in six now. And wow, mind warp. Right. So I get what you're saying and you're a hundred percent accurate and correct. It's just 
me playing the role of the arranger, I don't have some of those skills to make the 120 beats a minute song sound good at 80, perhaps. But a good arranger can do that. Right. See, I guess the difference is thinking about like, um, not thinking about the tempo being a hard and fast rule, but just knowing that, like, okay, I want the melody to be a hard and fast rule. Right? Yeah. So I'm going to rebuild things around the melody. Yes. And, um, and I'm feeling it this way, and then I change the harmony, and then because I change the harmony, now I feel differently about that tempo. It feels too fast. Like, I want to hang out on that melody longer now because it sits different in the harmony. Um, I think a better way to think about what you're saying is that, uh, or what you were saying previously, was, is that a really great song doesn't need a great arrangement. Y- right? Yes. A really great song yes. that the band knocks out of the park. Well, a great singer could walk out on the front of the stage with nothing but an acoustic guitar and the song is so complete. There's so much fabulous material in there that it comes across just as well to an audience that way as it does with the full band playing the arrangement all the way. And, you know, just the nuts and bolts of the music are so solid that everybody's on board either way. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, you know, like in my band, we spend so much time looking for well, where's the guitar solo going to go. Right. Or, or, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> and our guitarists sometimes will go, man, this doesn't need a solo. It really, yeah, like, I don't need that for this piece of music. It doesn't need that. So I think a good that- song will tell you what it wants and what it needs. Yes. Uh, I, yes, I'm a hundred percent there with you. And then there's always a few asterisks with like who the performer is and, oh, wow, they could like, they could just do some things with that song that most people can't, you know, yeah. like watching, um, I have definitely gone back and watched about a thousand times that, um, Prince's guitar solo on, uh, while my guitar gently weeps. Yeah, the Rock and Roll uh, Hall like of Fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah holy Christ. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, you thought he's done, and then he's just taking it up another notch, and then another notch, and then another notch. And you're like, if someone said, oh, yeah, can we take, like, can we put a five-minute guitar solo in here? Everyone <laughs> in the band would be like, what is wrong with you? You're right. <laughs> uh, until but, Prince Rogers Nelson walks out on stage and does exactly and, that. And you go, oh, and shit. Destroys. Yeah, I get yeah. it. I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And of course, uh, you know, I'm picking an exceptional example. I'm well aware of that. But, um, you know, it's the uh, there's always. There's always room for different. There's always room for surprises in music. And I think that's the thing that always brings me back. There's always, every time you play a song with different people in different places, uh, there's, there's room for new. There's room for something surprising. And that's why I'm never bored 
playing music. There's always something new to discover. There's always something or someone else's take on things to discover, you know? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, it, we, we've spent so much time talking about all this stuff and this has been a great episode. I mean, it really has, um, shine through is such a great sounding record. Where, where did you guys record this at? Uh, we recorded it in Hollywood at, um, an old studio called Sage and sound. Um, it is now closed. Unfortunately, it closed about six months after I recorded in it. Um, someone had bought out the building and then never did anything with it. So it's still just sitting there. Um, but my friend and the producer on the record, Jeff Babco, who deserves uh, a billion shout outs because he's totally the man. He's, uh, I mean, I could not have done this without him. Um, he's just like the best advice always. He and I went out to breakfast and he was just like, hey, uh, we, we ran into Victor and Drizo at breakfast. And um, Victor was just like, yeah, you should just come by and check out my space, which was Sage and Sean's. And so uh, we finished breakfast. I came home. I had to take care of a couple of things. And then I just drove down to Hollywood to his house. Uh, sorry, to his studio. And um, walked in and, and just checked the place out and was like way into it because I was specifically looking for a studio that was uh, like a room sound where I wasn't trying to... Uh, have everybody perfectly isolated, right? So the only person that was isolated was saxophone, and that was just because he was running some electronics and stuff that didn't allow him to do those things and be in the same room as us. Um, but everybody else was in one big room with baffles. And um, at the same exact time that I went in to check out the space, I got to meet uh, Chris Stephan, and Chris... Um, is an incredible engineer and was like Victor's studio partner uh, along with a great bass player named Sean Hurley. So the three of them all shared that space. And um, so Chris, I was just like, he was so awesome to just immediately meet and talk to and talk about music with. Um, And then we recorded it and he clearly you know, it's his space. It was his board. You know, everything was set up by him. So he was completely comfortable. And then after we recorded it, I talked to Jeff and I was just like, I was like, I think we should just have Chris mix it. Like he knows what we did in the room those two days. And he understood everything, how it happened and how everything's laid out. And he's not going to try and like turn it into something that it's not. He's going to just like honor what we recorded that day. Um, so after, well, so the pandemic got in the way of everything. Of course. Uh, Chris, Chris ended up, um, his wife is an actress. He had to go to Canada with her for something that she was shooting. And while she was there, she was already pregnant with their second child and the pandemic shut everything down. And so Chris literally got stuck in Canada because he could not come home because if he came home, he wouldn't be allowed back into Canada with his pregnant wife and his two year old. (laughs) 
Yeah. So he was literally like, dude, I'm here. Uh, I'm going to do some rough mixes. And he sent them on to me. And then I, I don't know, you know, everything kind of felt weird at the beginning of the pandemic. So I also, I just pulled back big time and I was like, uh, I'm just going to put this on hold for a little while. And so we did not actually come back to mixing until he returned to the States, which was in April of 2021. So we had like this long year of not really working on the record at all and letting it go. And then he and I dove right back in when he got back in town and we got the whole thing mixed in like a month and a half. Um, but his, his sound is clearly stamped on there. Um, I asked him specifically, I was like, I, you know, I want you to feel like you are a sixth or seventh member of the band. Yeah. And I, I want you to like bring what you do in and, He's an incredible engineer, so he did both bringing himself in and then also, like, having everything clean and nice if I wanted it. But um, but we didn't really go that route. We kind of, like, I, he did the first couple of mixes, and then, except for, like, a couple of specific things that I didn't like, which was, like, just some interesting saturation that I just felt like it was getting in the way on some tracks, like... I loved everything that was he was doing. And then when we got in front of the same set of speakers with both of our ears, it right, you know, right next to each other, it really made a world of difference in getting the mixes like dialed in. Yeah. And then um I'm a copious note taker. So uh yeah, like you know, I did lots of listening and just paying attention to what's working. We didn't need to edit anything. There wasn't a ton of overdubs on tracks in any way, shape or form. Everything was recorded live in the room. Um, and so we didn't, there's no take on there that is like the first half of one song and the back half of another song. Everything is, is complete takes as they were uh, recorded. And, um, and then mastered by, one of the greatest musicians I know alive, um, a great drummer, bass player, keyboard player named Nate Wood. He mastered it. Um, and that's how you get to hear what you hear today. Well, it's, it's such a, a, a good record. Um, you know, I, I've listened to it a couple of times and I'm just like, wow. Yeah, man, that's, that's where it's at. <laughs> so, Aha, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, man, it's it's so good. Let me ask this. Um, you know, I I know we've you know hit you know Friday May the 13th is when the record drops and all that good stuff. It, it are there going to be physical copies, physical formats available for folks to order from someplace, or is this going to be one of those go stream it wherever you can kind of things? Uh, it is, well, it's, I think everything these days is they go stream it wherever you can. Yeah, I <laughs> but, know. Um, but, but please tell me there's going to be physical format copies available. There is CDs and vinyl available. Okay, good, good. And they are both already printed and in my possession. Okay, good. Um, and so the single 
which is called Unknown Territory, which is the first track on the record, um, will be released on Friday, April 15th, I believe. Um, and that um, will be, there's actually a video that goes with that one that I've been working on with an amazing videographer and photographer out here named Nicole Caldwell. Um, and then uh, all the pre-saves and everything will be available from that. Um, and then there is, yes, there will be hard copies of CD available by Amazon. And yes, you can buy it on Tidal and Deezer and it'll be on Bandcamp. Um, the vinyl won't be coming through the label. That'll just be, um, coming from me, I believe. Um, we did a, we didn't do a huge run of vinyl. Um, but, um, but yes. Yeah, so physical is available. CDs for those people who like high-fidelity sounds and don't want squashed MP3s. Um, And vinyl for the vinyl lovers out there, which I am am coming around to more and more these days, mostly because um, I don't know exactly how old you are, but for me growing up, there's certainly something awesome about listening to a record from start to finish and, and starting to see like a whole arc of that, as opposed to here's 10 singles and it doesn't matter what order you listen to them in, right. you know, like, yes. like I, as you, you were talking about like Led Zeppelin, right? When one song finishes on almost every single Led Zeppelin record, my brain already starts listening like <laughs> I'm already the next, imagining yeah. the next song. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. you listen to them in, in the order that they set. And so there's something really beautiful about that to me. So, um, and there's also something that's kind of nice about, Oh, I listen to 18 to 20 minutes of music on one side of vinyl. And then I flip it over and I listen to the other side and there's, um, that physical action of having to walk over, the turntable and flip it over is a decision that you're making as opposed to, I just hit play on streaming and I walked away and then I made breakfast and then I answered this phone call and I walked outside and then I came back in and half the record had played and I didn't even know what happened. Yeah. You know, so, um, I'm with you there. I, I really love the, that concept of, of like the, the physical and hearing, the larger picture of the song. And, you know, I, I can't say that it'll do that for everybody, but the goal was that like, you know, when you listen to the record, it has this, at least some, some tracks hopefully have this feeling of like sucking you in where you stop thinking about what you're doing or paying attention to, you know, time. You're just, you're just kind of in that space. Yeah, man. That, and that's where it's at. I mean, I, I think that's where the, the, where you get the juice from, right. Is, is yeah. sitting down and listening to the darn thing. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I've gone way over, but, uh, <sighs> this has been such a great episode. I mean, it really has a couple of things that um, I want to hit on real quick before I let you get on with your afternoon. And one of those is you are still teaching in LA. You you teach all the time. Um, Tell folks where they can 
find you online if we have listeners that want to, you know, reach out to you? Where, where can people find you easiest? I think the easiest, I mean, it's, uh, I guess it's pretty standard these days. The easiest is to reach out to me through my website, which is just danschnell.com. Um, I would feel remiss not to spell it. <laughs> which is B-A-N-S-C-H-N-E-L-L-E.com because someone invariably always leaves the E off the end of my name. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Instagram at the same thing, just Dan Schnell, um, and reach out to me there. Um, I, teach, I teach a lot of private lessons um, out of my garage studio and... Um, I still go and do master classes and clinics at a lot of places uh, at USC, at CalArts, at Saddleback College. Um, I've been teaching combos um, or, you know, like uh, groups uh, at CSUN, which is Cal State Northridge here, uh, which has a really great program, also run by a fantastic drummer named Tina Raymond. Um, and... Um, I think those are probably the best places. Okay. Um, without just giving out my email address. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we we, um, pro- we probably don't want to do that, but I mean, we can if you really want to. But um, you know, if you if if you contact me through my website, it comes straight to my email, um, and that is a great way to reach out. Um, and I'm very serious about my teaching, mostly because um, I can't not teach because I have learned so much from all of my teachers and I still am very thankful to have the opportunity to reach out to so many of them still. And they, all of my favorite teachers were never worried about time and money. They were worried about information. You know, it was like, this is important stuff. This is what you need to go work on. This is what you need to think about. And, and they have all, from Peter to Aron to Ndugu to Terry Lynn, uh, they have all given me so much more like way after the fact, too, in emails and phone calls and conversations at gigs and stuff, you know, random questions about this uh, or that. And or what do you think about this? You know, so um, the teaching is really um, just kind of, I I feel like in a lot of ways it's built into the music these days. I've just gleaned so much great information from other people that that would be totally selfish of me to keep it all to myself. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome too. And you know, the world thanks you for that. I mean, that's that's what this show is about: is spreading the joy of what we do. And, you know, I've said this until I'm purple in the face, but drumming has such a brotherhood and sisterhood around it. It's such a community that is unlike other instruments, I think. You know, I'm not trying to say anything bad about bass players or guitarists, but, you know, I when I go see a drummer play live, I'm coming home with something new. I'm ripping him or her off somehow, some way. 
and I will absolutely give that credit. I'll be like, yeah, I ripped that lick off Dan Schnell, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Um, so I just think it's such a great community that we've built. And that's what I hope this show is, is kind of like the, I don't know, the drummer hangout. That's what I want this to be. I really do. I want this podcast to be, hey, you know, I, I'm a metalhead, but I heard this, you know, awesome jazz record called Shine Through by Dan Schnell, and it turned me on to new things. That's what I want this to be. And I, I appreciate you so much for taking the time to do this and share with all of us, um, you know, about your life, your journey and your new record. So let's sell out your vinyl since it's a limited <laughs> run. Let's sell that out. And I'll say this kids, if you want a copy of Dan Schnell's shine through buy a physical format, it pays Dan more money. I promise you it does. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Go listen to it on Spotify or whatever. That's all great if they just want you to discover it, but buy a physical format copy of this record. It's so good. Dan, thank you so much for taking time to do this. Jamie, I really appreciate it. I love um, your larger concept for the podcast. Um, I'd love to come on another time. We can talk about totally different stuff. Um, we can get nerdy about drums all day long. I've got lots of vintage gear in here. <laughs> sitting next to me to talk about good um, but i really yes but thank you so much for for having me and um uh shining a light on what i do i really appreciate it and um i hope some folks out there listening will will get some worthwhile information from it as well yeah for sure man and we will absolutely have you back soon and we'll nerd out on Slingerland, uh, Leedy, Ludwig, uh, Rogers. I don't know what your your pill of poison is, but we can talk about any of the above and all of the yeah, above. Yeah, how about I, all of the above? Yes. I'm sitting in front of a, a Gretsch round badge and a late 60s Slingerland and a MIJ snare drum right now. <laughs> Good. Yes, we can absolutely geek out on all that, but we'll have you back sometime real soon because I've really enjoyed this and I think you have a lot to offer our crowd. So we'll absolutely do it again um, at your leisure. Dan, thanks so much, man. We'll be in touch real soon. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Jamie. And uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah, man. You too. Thanks. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 143 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Uh, many, many thanks to Dan Schnell for taking time out of his busy schedule and coming on uh, the podcast and talking with us. Really had a good time talking with him. Uh, and again, the album is Shine Through. Pick that up wherever fine music can be found. Hey, uh, I'm going to ask the same favor that I always ask. If you want to help out the show, please share a link with a friend. Uh, whatever platform you're using to listen into this podcast, leave us a star rating or review. That helps us to continue to grow. We do answer every single email that we get here at the podcast. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is that email address. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. 
Your homework assignment, as it is always, is go see some live music if it is safe for you to do so before it all goes away. Thanks for listening, and until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.